The Low Post is brought to you by Goodyear. Celebrating March deal days with month-long service and savings, visit GoodyearAutoService.com for offers. Before we get started, I wanted to remind you that there are now three, three episodes of The Right Time with Bomani Jones every week. Bo offers his unique take on the intersection of sports and culture every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and on Fridays, he will be joined by Dominique Foxworth. Big fan of him. You can find The Right Time with Bobani Jones wherever you get your podcasts. And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post podcast on the Monday of Trade Deadline Week. And we've officially reached the point where it's too dangerous to do a Trade Deadline preview podcast. Too much stuff could happen, rendering everything you say obsolete. So instead, we're going to talk about my least favorite subject in the NBA, and that's injuries. And the reason we're going to talk about it is because... LeBron James, Iron Man, Terminator, indestructible, for the second time in three seasons now with the Lakers has suffered an injury that's going to keep him out for a while. And it comes at a very interesting time for the Lakers, who are 28 and 15, third in the West. And to help us break down what is going to happen, whether this changes their calculus for the next 72 hours before the deadline, the one and only Syracuse University's own Dave McMenamin. It's a great time to be an Orange alum this time of year in March. I think it's our third uh, Sweet 16 trip in the last six years. I say our and we when it comes to Syracuse basketball. Get used to it, Zach. Uh, you would, too, if Dartmouth had anything worth talking about. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there's been a little bit of work stress going on uh, this weekend, but uh, Syracuse has been a nice reprieve from that. Let me ask you, you're a little younger than me. Do you go around your house singing the Cuse is in the house? Oh my God. Oh my God. From what is that? 96, 96 when they were all singing that? Without Does that McGuire mean something to you? Wild. Is that a meaningful thing for you? It does mean something to me. I was a freshman in 01. So that team was a team I was aware of, but I wasn't a Syracuse fan yet. So it, it wasn't quite, uh, you know, a part of my Syracuse experience, but I'm on literally like six or seven text message threads with various groups of Syracuse friends, including some who are, you know, in the NBA life these days. And that clip of Syracuse in the house, oh my God, oh my God, got got passed around. I support any team from the real Big East, even if they even if they were are traders and left the real Big East. I support any classic Big East team. So go I don't know. I the go Syracuse. Who did they beat yesterday? Oh, it was a huge win, man. We were 2-0 in the tournament now, and uh, we took care of business yesterday against West Virginia, which is a former, or I guess maybe a current Big East team, but a, a team that we, we used to have battles with in the Big East. Look, all I know is that the North Texas Mean Green lost. And the only reason I know that is because my daughter is in a kid's tournament, a kid's pool, and picked only by mascots and just absolutely <laughs> fell in love with the Mean Green. Oh, more bad news for her. Uh, she had the yellow, the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets going all the way to the championship game. So her bracket is just in shambles. She doesn't know this, but she should be distraught about the state of her bracket. All right. Um, well, LeBron's hurt, man. That doesn't happen very often. Um, the Lakers are 28 and 15 in third. They are two games up in the loss column on the San Antonio Spurs, who are seventh. Um, let's just set the stage here. Anthony Davis is injured. The Lakers lost yesterday. They played hard, but lost by 17, I think, in Phoenix. Saw, saw, saw most of that game. For the season, they are minus four per 100 possessions in 463 minutes without both of their stars. 
on the floor. Um, they have a medium difficulty schedule for the rest of the season. So there is much panic now that not only are the Lakers at risk of falling out of the top three or four in the West, but that they are at risk for falling into the play-in tournament, which I don't care if you have LeBron James and Anthony Davis. You don't want any part of that thing. Now, they would likely be in the position where they would have two games to win one, so they would still be a safe bet. Utah doesn't want any part of them in the first round. That's a disaster for Utah if you have this incredible season and you're looking at those dudes in the first round. Um, but I, I just don't care who you are. You want to avoid the play and if necessary. So just start there. What are you hearing about the timetable? And, and how worried are you about the Lakers' prospects of holding on to a top six seed? The initial thought process is in the three to four week range. And that is with the understanding that they are still exploring options for treatment, uh, that they are still evaluating. You know, we're basically 48 hours uh, out from this injury. And in that 48 hours, he accompanied the team to Phoenix for to be there for with the emotional kind of side of things, trying to have his presence provide some sort of solace that, hey, I'm still here. I'm going to be a part of things. Uh, but now that they've returned to Los Angeles, they can get their hands on him and, and see what the recovery options are. But three to four weeks in this condensed COVID-19 season, you're talking about you know, 13, 15 games, uh, which would only leave you with a dozen games or so on the back end to ramp up before the playoffs. And, and in that 13 to 15 games, we don't know how many of – those games that Anthony Davis will be out. And also, we don't know if the three to four weeks will be enough. It could be longer than that. And so it's a tough spot for the Lakers right now. Well, look, there's a tendency to dismiss this as, well, who cares? The Lakers don't care about their seed. All they need to do is get in the playoffs healthy. Uh, to, you know, I, to some degree, that's true. This will make a difference for their first-round opponent. I mean, they, they had a shot to be the number two seed, in which case... They could have still drawn Dallas, which would be a really bad first-round matchup. They also could have gotten a Portland team. They could have gotten somehow, they could have gotten another play-in team like the Warriors or somebody like that. Now, if they fall to six, they get the Clippers. They get the Nuggets. Like, every bit of wear and tear matters. And I think it helped the Lakers in the bubble that they cruised through the West with, what were they, 12-3 and three in the West in the playoffs last year? They didn't really get pushed at all. They were pretty fresh. So, so that matters. And so let's, I, I did this. I said, let's assume he misses 12 more games. Um, I, don't, I don't know how many of those games AD would also miss, but let's just say a lot of them. The Lakers go five and seven. Just pretend that that's true. That takes them to 33 and 22, which is equivalent to the win percentage that the Spurs currently have, and the Blazers currently have, uh, and other teams down in that range currently have. Now, to fall all the way to seventh just in that stretch, the Spurs would have to go 11 and five, and the Mavs would have to go 10 and three. I think, I think, that, well, first of all, we just have to figure out is like five and seven optimistic? I think, I, I bet, I bet they would sign up for five and seven right now. Don't you think so? I do. I, I was texting with, with a friend yesterday, and we were kind of playing this game what would they go over a 15 game stretch? And uh, he was pretty pessimistic, um, you know, going like three and 12 for over 15 games. I think they're a better team than that without those two 
incredibly talented, maybe two of the top six or seven players in the league. But I'm not sure how much better than that. I mean, I, I think like if they go around 400 ball, like that would be a win uh, over, over this time period. Well, their next four games are big because their next four games are at New Orleans, winnable in theory, Philadelphia without Embiid, Cleveland and Orlando. If they can go two and two in those four, they will set themselves up to be in pretty good shape because after that it gets hard, including a seven-game road trip that's coming up, taking them, well, part of it is in the Staples Center, but other than that, it's mostly Eastern Conference teams. Um, I think... If they can go five and seven, that would be remarkable. If they can approximate that, I think they should still be safe for the play-in. And and here's why. The Spurs, although they're only two games back of the Lakers in the loss column, have so many games to make up. Like their schedule is absolutely jammed. And so I don't think you can do the normal like two games in the loss column thing because they're so far behind in the win column that they'd have to make up so many games. Dallas would worry me if I were the Lakers, because they have the easiest remaining schedule in the Western Conference by a lot. And 10 and three over these next 13 games for them is like 100% on the table. That's 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 on the table for them. But the focus that, you know, some of the in, in, in a tendency to sort of focus on how far will the Lakers fall while LeBron and AD are out, it's not really the right question. Like, it's an interesting question. What really matters is where do you finish? And so I think what a lot of these, what a lot of the panic maybe overlooks is when those guys come back, they're going to be a juggernaut again. And if they can get enough games at the back end of the schedule and the back of their schedule is, you know, their last five, six games are pretty soft. They will have a chance to make up any ground that they lose. So I, I don't know what the projection systems have done, where they have them finishing. I still think they're a pretty decent bet to stay out of the play in, but it's, it, it's on the table. It's on the table because five and seven might be optimistic. And can you imagine? I don't know what the league would actually be rooting for. Is it better to have the Lakers in the play-in because the play-in would be this like TV extravaganza? Or is it, would there be so much panic about the Lakers somehow missing the playoffs that they would rather? It, it's it's an incredible story, but it's on the table. It's totally possible. Yeah, because obviously injuries are always a factor in any postseason scenario, but one can potentially overcome something in a game one and be right by a game three or game four or whatever and have a chance to impact that series. In a one-game scenario, one and done, one and you're out, that could totally change things where since we're talking about Anthony Davis and LeBron James now carrying significant injuries to whenever they do return to the court with LeBron's ankle and Anthony's calf strain and tendinosis in his right leg, like, yeah, that's that's a scary scenario. Now, in a normal year, I would say, and nothing's normal about this, obviously we know that, but I would say that there would be concern on the Lakers' part about falling out of the top four, right? You want to have first-round playoff series at least, have some sort of home court advantage. That means nothing, and quite frankly, the Lakers have played far better on the road than they have at Staples Center because there are no fans at Staples Center, and they're a bunch of humans who feed off the adrenaline that – other humans provide from the stance. And so so to me, that's one thing that you can at least rest easy with if you're a Laker fan, that if they fall, you know, to five through eight, it's not all that 
it shouldn't have all that much of an impact on their chances in the postseason. Now, of course, I agree with you. The playing scenario could be potentially disastrous, and that should be the the I guess the basement they're going to do everything they can to try to avoid. Yeah, if you force me to predict, I would predict that they finish sixth or fifth or something like that. But still, like again, the Clippers are Nuggets in the first round. There's just no easy opponents in the West. The only team that is looking at a potentially relatively easier first-round opponent is Utah, which should. They've been scuffling lately, but the schedule suggests they should finish with the top seed. And if Dallas leapfrogs San Antonio, which I think will happen, then you're in the San Antonio, Golden State, Memphis, New Orleans. Like th- that, There's a meaningful gap between those teams and the top seven, assuming Utah can hold on to the number one seed. But if it becomes the Lakers... Uh, my God, poor Jazz. I hope not for them. That would be, well, you know, it would be fun. It would be, it would be kind of funny. The <laughs> Lakers also don't have any of, it's a little early for this, but the only tiebreaker they own amongst all these teams is they've won the season series with the Spurs 2-1. Everything else is either they're losing or it's tied and it's in play. And that's why, by the way, the timetable for LeBron is critical. April 22 and April 24, they have the baseball series in Dallas. Back-to-back games, not a back-to-back days, but consecutive games against Dallas. That could be massively important for the play-in, depending on what things look like between now and then. They'd certainly like to have him back uh, for those games. And that's a month from today, and and that's where we're kind of looking at, based on the conversations that that I've had over the weekend. Um, And and listen, I don't know how this could have been avoided other than Solomon Hill not trying to do everything he can to make a play against the most notable player of his generation and try to continue to make winning plays for a Hawks scene that came into that Saturday afternoon game on a seven game winning streak. Um, you know, listen, I, I play low level pickup poops. Uh, I played a lot of basketball in my life that it's not a, a play that you see too often. Uh, I'm also not ready to label it like a dirty play or, and certainly. Yeah, I, I can't, I can't get there. I saw what Trez said after the game. I, I didn't see anything there. Yeah. I mean, I covered uh, the Cavs a few years back where Della Vadova dove for a ball and um, you know, took out uh, a, a Hawks player. Uh, actually. Um, I think it was Corver. Right? Well, Delhi Delhi was, Delhi was just, a one-man wrecking crew there for a while in the playoffs. In, in, the, in the same spirit, though, while it was uh, not received well by the Atlanta organization, I, I couldn't get myself to believe that it was intentionally dirty. It, it was a guy doing whatever he could to make plays around the margins because he didn't necessarily have all the, the physical gifts that some of his opponents did. And um, you know, if you talk about Solomon Hill versus LeBron James, it kind of applies the same way. I mean, Solomon Hill is not gifted with the, the same attributes that LeBron does, and he, he was trying to make a play on you know the guy who potentially could win his could have win his fifth MVP this year. I guess we have to say it that way. We will um, talk about that. Yeah, and um, you know now now the Lakers suffer the consequences. I guess one thing that we've talked about all year long was what would be the impact of the 71 day off season on a guy who's in his 18th season, 36 years old. I mean, that injury had nothing to do with the shortened off season. The injury was just a a freak play. Yeah, I would agree. Nothing to do with it at all. In fact, maybe, maybe he gets his body some rest and, you know, comes back fresh for the playoffs, much like the, the 
hiatus that everyone had kind of allowed everyone to get fresh last year through circumstances nobody wanted. But um, the other thing is there could be some absolute high comedy jockeying to avoid the Lakers in the first round in the last two weeks of the season because I don't care what any of these teams say. Nobody, nobody, you don't want to work this entire year. I mean, we've seen teams do it in the West year after year after year. Like the Jazz didn't want to play the Rockets. The Nuggets didn't want to play the Rockets. Nobody wanted to play the Rockets uh, except the Lakers who steamrolled them. Yeah. And like, I just, we could see some real high comedy. Now the play-in complicates that a little bit, so maybe we won't. But if the Lakers are slated to be like fourth or fifth, and it's it's obvious in the last week of the season that they're not going to dip further than that, the, the, the rush to get out of the four or five series could be pretty amazing. And you almost couldn't blame a team in that scenario. Usually, I, I don't like the idea of cheating the game. You know, the basketball gods will come back to get you. Uh, but in, in this case, I mean, uh, the Lakers will clearly be entering into the playoffs if they are healthy with a lower seed than represents how good they are. And uh, if you're a higher seed, that that that's unfortunate. It is. Um... It's going to be a fun stretch run here. I, I just hope they're healthy when it when it really matters. And I think for, for by all accounts, people are optimistic that they're going to be healthy when it matters. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's there up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, watch out for them. You name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You know, I was talking to a lot of people over the weekend, and I asked tons of people around the league the same question, which is, do you think this will embolden contenders to go a little bit harder in win-now moves at the trade deadline, sensing the favorite or what we all considered the favorite at the beginning of the season is vulnerable. So I got to go, I got to, if I'm Phoenix, I got to go more all in. If I'm Philly, I got to go more. I mean, there are very few of these contenders who actually have stuff to trade. I mean, that's part of the problem is that all the good teams have traded all their picks. Most of the bad teams are trying to get into the play-in tournament. There still aren't a lot of trades to make. Um, that was met with skepticism for those reasons, uh, that, that there would be any increased urgency. In fact, the most common question that came back to me is, Zach, you're asking the wrong question. The question you should be asking is, does this embolden the Lakers to get more active at the trade deadline in search of just anybody who can just go out and run 20 pick and rolls or just take a bunch of shots or just help keep the offense afloat um, 
over these next two or three weeks? Have you heard anything to this regard? Yeah, well, first of all, it's interesting the point you made about the Lakers being the team because they are kind of beat up, allowing teams to feel the, emboldened to make a run. Like, you still have Brooklyn. <laughs> to me, obviously, we haven't seen Kevin Durant in a month or so, but but Brooklyn, to me, is the super team this year. Uh, and I know, you know, it's not that we haven't covered them um, at ESPN. We certainly have, but I don't know if the consciousness of the basketball world sees them the way I have and, and some of the people I talk to have like that that's a juggernaut waiting to happen um, but beyond that yeah I mean if 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 we're talking about let's just keep with the 12 game stretch because we're you know using dummy numbers here if we're talking about them potentially getting a player that could help them go seven and five rather than four and eight over the stretch, and that being the difference between being a you know three or four seed versus a eight seven eight maybe a nine seed, I'd, it'd probably be worth it. Um, I one hundred one hundred percent. Well, obviously, it depends on the price, right? I mean, right. That's, that's and I, I just don't know when you look at the Lakers' assets. They have two young players uh, who you know are very affordable, and Talon Horton Tucker and Alex Caruso. That just about any team in the league that's contending could use uh but they want to be able to resign them this offseason uh to continue to have some young talent around lebron who will be near 19 next year uh and and so what do you do in the moment um and risk potentially hurting the future of this championship window because theoretically whenever you have lebron and ad healthy together, you have a chance to win until you know, Father Time just decides that, okay, I've given LeBron enough slack. It's time to, for me to, to catch up to him. Yeah, I don't know. I don't really know what they can do. You know, I look, I tried to build some fake trades and the problem is, you know, THT, THT sounds like a drug. Probably someone has made this joke already, but it's like, THT just sounds like I'm on some good THT. Give me some, give me, some, give me a hit of the THT. Uh, and Caruso, you turn this into the Joe Rogan podcast. <laughs> oh, be, please be careful. Um, um, they make not very much money by NBA standards, so trading them, you're not going to be able to get, in all likelihood, a real player back. They can trade their 2027 first round pick, which sounds like who cares about 2027? I'd rather have the Lakers 2027 first round pick than any of their more recent or more soon to be acquired mm -hmm. first round picks. If you if you put that into a deal with THT, you could get something real, but you need to attach salary to it. Um, and that's what becomes dicey, right? They don't have a high salary player who is both expendable to them and really desirable for another team. Do you want to hear my favorite? It's not even that good of a trade, honestly. The only one that the only one I even liked a little bit that I could come up with. Lay it on me. The 2027 first. Let's say we top 10 protect it just in case. 2027 first and Contavious Caldwell Pope for Evan Fournier. That's the only that's the only one I could come up with. Fournier and look, I can hear the Lakers fans. KCP was our third best player in the bubble, uh, a dogged defender. Like we know, we can count on him. We know at the biggest stage when the lights are bright, KCP showed up. Evan Fournier craps the bed in the playoffs every year. 
He's not the defender that KCP is. Like this, that just may just be a bad trade for the Lakers. Like I, I think that's on the table. The only reason I brought it up is KCP. We saw it last night in Phoenix. We're going to see a lot, like an alarming amount of KCP running off screens and taking jump shots in the next two or three weeks. He can do that. He can't run you a pick and roll and get you five, six assists. And Fournier's playmaking has actually been, frankly, disappointing. It's it's kind of stalled out in the last three or four years. He'll get you three assists, four assists, but he can, he can be a second side ball handler for Dennis Schroeder. He can run a little bit of offense here or there. That's the only one I thought of. And to me, if I'm the Lakers, given KCP's institutional importance, his connections to LeBron and AD and clutch, and the value of that 2027 first round pick, I'd probably say no to that. If I'm the Magic, I might I might say yes to that just for the pick. And I just couldn't think of anyone better or any other deal that made any sense. And so that leaves me, and I think you share this assumption, that leads me assuming... Uh, that they'll just work the buyout market. Yeah, I, I've been kind of under the understanding for about a month now that the buyout market was was going to be their goal. Now, obviously, the last couple of days of that month <laughs> were, were them dealing with the LeBron injury. And so Frank Vogel admitted that they have to reevaluate what their plans were going to be. But it doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be new things available to them just because their circumstances changed. Uh, the Fournier thing is interesting to me only on the sense that Adrian Wojnarowski put out there a couple of weeks ago that, that potentially the Lakers would want to get off some salary of the current group that they have, anticipating the guys that are going to want to re-sign this summer, including Talon Horton Tucker, Alex Caruso, uh, Dennis Schroeder, who could happen before the summer. Potentially they could re-sign him before the playoffs even begin. And then who knows about Montrez Harrell? Um, in that sense, I, I can maybe get behind the KCP Fournier deal. Fournier. In, in other expiring. words, KCP's got two more years left, and Fournier is expiring. Exactly. Um, but I don't know. I, I I more am of the mindset of I remember how important KCP was to their championship run, and he was lights out for the first month of the season. He's had. You know, very mediocre two months since then, but he has it in him, uh, and he's been a champion with this group and a really important piece to this group. You know, he provides a bit of that defensive tenacity that they they had with Avery Bradley last year when they first kind of established their identity under um, Frank Vogel of like we are a defensive first team, and he can get into guys, and he has a good motor and. He also keeps their pace going because he can fly up and down the court. And when his, his mind's right and his body's right, like he is a very effective player. And so I, I would, you know, I, I would caution against adding someone like Evan Fournier who has his own question marks to remove a guy like KCP. But I don't totally dismiss it because, you know, they are going to have some real salary cap decisions to make. Um, in the off season and uh, in, in the bus family, while obviously uh, they have institutional wealth from the value of their team, uh, they're not an ownership group like some of their competitors where, you know, just signing off a, you know, $70 million luxury tax bill is, is something that they're built for. Uh, we have some sad Lakers news to pass on as we record this. Uh, uh, it has been announced by the team, apparently, I'm reading on Twitter, that Elgin Baylor has passed away oh, no. at the age of 86 from natural causes. Um, just a word on Elgin Baylor. Young people who maybe, well, I mean, young people, I never saw Elgin Baylor play, but 
people who maybe aren't that familiar with um, Elgin Baylor should do some research on him. The guy was an absolutely revolutionary player uh, for his time, one of the first real above-the-rim athletes. His numbers are ridiculous. And he's also kind of a tragic figure. I mean, and this is even – forget the Clipper stuff. I don't even want to talk about the Clipper stuff. Um, he's almost a tragic figure because, you know, he, he was 37 in 71-72 when the Lakers finally broke the Celtics' jinx and won the title. I mean, they didn't beat the Celtics that year, but finally got through, you know, Jerry West title, all that. And he was in decline and – Bill Sharman, I, I think I don't. This is I'm doing this off the top of my head. I, I believe tried to convince him to be a sixth man, or did bring him off the bench. And for whatever reason, Elgin Baylor retired at the beginning of that year. And of course, the Lakers then go on to finally win the title, leaving him without without that sort of honor. But you know, the guy is, I, I think, an under talked about NBA great in terms of how he advanced the style of the game, and just and just frankly, like how prodigi- how prodigious he was of it as a talent. Yeah, I mean everything. I've heard about him um, growing up and learning the game. He was, you know, that that wing prototype that we see today. It didn't really exist before he put it together. You know, a, a small forward was far more stationary back in the day. You weren't given the responsibilities and latitude to, you know, use your ball handling, use your shooting, um, use the the entire tool set that that the guys do today and um someone that kobe bryant spoke highly of him uh in the time that i covered kobe um and and someone you know ironically enough the lakers this season uh, are, are wearing you know their laker lore uh jersey set uh in homage to, to elgin um and the, they updated um like a, a blue and white look uh, that uh, you know recalls the, the 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 jerseys he used to wear uh, used to wear excuse me and uh yeah, I mean, I'm just learning about this real Minneapolis, time. Minneapolis, Minneapolis, you know, back to the Minneapolis. His first two years were with the Minneapolis Lakers. Yeah. Um, those jerseys, by the way, it's, it's it's fitting that you mention that because on my illegible notes is a note of mine to remind to remind myself to talk about. They wore those jerseys last night, and I watched that game last night specifically because I wanted to see how they looked without Bron and AD. And those jerseys are just chef's kiss perfect yeah, the white sharp. jerseys with the light blue and alex caruso wearing the light blue headband this is gonna sound strange i just couldn't take my eyes off alex caruso <laughs> he looks so goddamn good wearing that jersey and, yeah. and the and the the light blue headband well you know there will be a lot more to talk about with elgin baylor an absolute nba legend condolences to his family and to lakers family and nba family because he, he's an all-time great and this is a huge a huge loss um what else should we talk about with regard to the Lakers? I guess we, I guess we're constitutionally required to talk about the MVP. This right. is going to affect the MVP race. There's just no way around it. I do think that like ten games, eleven games in a pandemic season, ten, eleven games counts as like you didn't miss any games. Once we get beyond that, e- even if a candidate like Jokic plays the whole season, I, I still think ten games is like a margin of error. Once we get beyond that, it gets dicey, and that's before you look at the season that Jokic. And now Giannis playing his way into the conversation. Like, they're just having incredible seasons. Embiid, we've all done the MVP candidates. We know who they are. Embiid's obviously injured. Um, I guess I'm just going to TBD and see how many games he misses before I read too much into it. But it doesn't It doesn't help LeBron's case for the fifth MVP. No, and it, the irony of it is that he had just come off the first game of the year where his teammates – and Frank Vogel all like stamped him as the MVP. Uh, he had 37 points against the Hornets 
and Frank Vogel just opened up the door in his post-game comments saying, like, like this guy's the MVP. I don't, I don't know what you're missing here. But Kyle Kuzma went as far as to say that, like, not only is he MVP this year, but he only has four of them in his career. He should probably have eight, nine, or ten of them, and everybody knows that. And it, it does make the situation tough. Um, it, it sets up for some potential drama and, and a great story if he does return and, and looks dominant and the Lakers go on some wild run in the last 15 games or so that he does play. And, oh, man, like, you know, he's a guy who understands a good story and, and that could be uh, setting up in his favor. But right now, um, yeah, you certainly you look at guys like uh, Jokic, you look like you look at Dame Lillard. Um yeah, you mentioned Giannis. Luca is uh, playing. Luca is now up to thirty-seven percent from three after being ice cold for the first month of the season. Is playing out of his mind for the Mavericks. Yeah, I, 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 I can't bring myself to mention James Harden in, in a serious light in terms of winning ooh, it. Ooh, ooh, spicy. I mean, well, here's the thing. Like on on some level, and, and I think you and I actually got into this a little bit back in 1718 where I, I believed LeBron should have been MVP and you and others who I respect your opinion uh, said, well, he can't win it. Cause he spent that month, you know, kind of pouting because he wanted the lake, uh, the, one of the Cavs to improve their roster. And, and my kind of counter to that was, well, he was still playing and wielding whatever control he could over the organization to, to try to make them better. And they did indeed get better. And so, in a way, it actually shows how valuable he is because he, he can have that type of influence. Um, so, in that sense, I, I, I guess I could give Harden some credit for his move out of Houston uh, because it was a similar type of tactic where he was like, you know, I'm going to have to prove through my play being subpar that I'll eventually get the scenario I want. Um, at the same time, the LeBron scenario, it was all within the same organization versus the Houston Rockets. We see Steven Silas looking like somebody shot his dog uh, during his post-game press conferences on, on a regular basis. Uh, well, I didn't vote for LeBron that year, so I have um, some consistency on my side. Look, the Harden thing, I don't want to get into it. I wrote a whole column about it. It would be unprecedented for any for someone to win the MVP while getting traded in season. That said, like... It's not unprecedented for someone to win the MVP or almost win it both in their first season with a team. The only difference is the transaction happened in the offseason. And so you're talking about a matter of weeks or a yep. month. And it looked unseemly. It was off. It was not great. It looked unseemly. We can all agree on that. But we're really just talking about a month. But I do agree that um, to me, it takes a, a, it almost takes a perfect storm of events for him to win. Uh, and frankly, it seems like the basketball gods are striking down everybody left and right to to make that perfect storm of events happen. But one of this one of the events is that you know there has to be a void, not has to be, but it would help his case if there were a void of like supernova candidates, and there is not this year. I mean, Jokic is having one of the greatest inter offensive individual seasons of all time. The other thing is, and this is the last thing, I've seen some stuff about well, if we're going to hold Giannis's postseason failures against him in the voting for an award that is theoretically not about, not theoretically, that is not about the postseason. Why is James Harden a serious candidate? Um, and I don't 
disagree with like the very big picture logic of that. I'm always a voter that tries to exclude the postseason period. Um, that was going to be harder this year, given what happened in the bubble. Here's the distinction between Harden and Giannis. And I've said this and I've written it, but the, the, the fans making this argument need to just have it hammered in. Um, Giannis has won two straight MVPs. Only three players in the history of the NBA have won three in a row. Larry Bird, Will Chamberlain, and Bill Russell. Michael didn't do it. Kareem didn't do it. Magic didn't do it. I mean, you're talking about putting someone beyond Mount Rushmore. And all three of those guys, Bird won championships in year one and year three of winning the three straight. Russell, I think, won all three championships. Russell Celtics. Wilt won the MVP. Wilt's Sixers team won the championship in the second year of those three MVPs. So year three, they've all gotten a title. Giannis would be the first one to win three in a row, having not won one of the previous two titles, and the uncertainty of how they're going to do in the playoffs. I, I just think it's a little bit apples to oranges, the Giannis Harden postseason failure conversation. That's all, because you're talking about a vote that would put Giannis into very, 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 very ultra-rarefied historic territory. And I do think the precedent is at least worth thinking about. That's all. That's it's fair to mention. I, I, I don't... I don't want to dismiss Giannis or James Harden as a candidate. I, I don't think either will win. Well, I'll say this. Giannis, I think he had 15 assists the other day. People need to start paying attention to what Giannis has done in the last month. He's hitting his threes. Now, I don't particularly think that's yeah, – we'll see if it lasts. Shooting better at the line. His playmaking, just – who did they play there? I don't remember who they played. They played somebody. The Spurs the other day. Just in that one game, he had three or four passes – where he just would not have thrown them even last season. Either he wouldn't have seen them, wouldn't have seen them in time, wouldn't have seen them and decided to execute them. Three or four passes that caused me to rewind and say, whoa, that's a little scary. That's a little scary for this league. So Giannis, as great as he was, is rounding out, not the rough spots, because he didn't really have any rough spots other than his three-point shot. Well, I guess the free throws were a rough spot. He's rounding out some of the rough spots in his game in ways that really could matter for the Bucks postseason staying power and should matter for the MVP race too. So we'll see right now. Jokic has to be considered the big favorite right now. That's the bottom line. Dave McMenamin go back to LeBron, uh, LeBron and Lakers and all that duty. You do a wonderful job out there. It's good to see you. And uh, who are, do we know who Syracuse is playing next round? Oh yeah. We play Houston on Saturday night, nine fifty five Eastern tip. So, uh, you know, not a lot of well, sleep be- on that night. Between you and Friedel and my Big East loyalties from being a kid, I will be rooting for Syracuse to uh, to make the Elite Eight. It's good to see you, buddy. You too, Zach. Our Difference Maker of the Week is brought to you by our friends at CarMax. Don't just buy a car. Love your car with the new CarMax Love Your Car Guarantee. This week's Difference Maker is James Harden, and in particular, James Harden and the best pocket passes you will ever see. Harden has played his way into the MVP conversation, like it or not, for the Brooklyn Nets, carrying them with Kyrie Irving, but without Kevin Durant, and engaging or re-engaging in his super-duper playmaking mode that we haven't seen in a couple years as he's gone into step-back three ISO mode. And just watch his pocket passes. When he hits DJ or Jeff Green or Bruce Brown or Nick Claxton on the roll, it just flows right out of his dribble. You don't even see it coming. He's dribble, 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 boom, bounce pass. And the defense doesn't see it coming. The level of disguise is incredible. And that, combined with the fact that Harden himself is a threat to make a floater or a layup, defenses are just completely off balance. He keeps them guessing. He's manipulating them from one step ahead. And he's reminding everyone that, yeah, 
he once upon a time, not that long ago, led the league in assists. That's how good of a passer he is. So that's our difference maker of the week. Again, our thanks to CarMax. For more difference makers, check out my weekly 10 things column on the ESPN Insiders page. All right, let's welcome in the great Kevin Pelton to talk about the other depressing injury news that happened over the weekend, and that is LaMelo Ball, runaway rookie of the year and key cog starter on a current playoff team in Charlotte, uh, fracturing his wrist and potentially being done for the season. Mr. Pelton wrote about uh, the impact of this injury over the weekend. KP, how are you doing? Well, I'm bummed about this injury. The NBA got a lot less fun to watch without LaMelo Ball. It sure did. Um, let's let's start here. Um, Charlotte is, as we speak, 20 and 21. They are in eighth, a strong eighth in the always mediocre Eastern Conference. Uh, they are only a game in the loss column above 10th, but they are now four above the Raptors, who are in 11th. So there's a little gap now between 10th and 11th in the Eastern Conference. And obviously the Raptors have some rather large decisions to make trade-wise over the next four days. What did your projections taking ball out say about Charlotte and their playoff chances? I mean, I think they still have a pretty good chance of making the play-in. It's just a lot more likely to be a difficult path. It was always going to be, you know, uh, unlikely for them to finish in the top six, uh, get up that high. But, you know, now instead of maybe hosting one of those two play-in games, you know, that potential, we're talking about more likely that they have to win two of them on the road to get into the playoffs. I think that's fair. Um, and look, there's there's going to be a lot of jockeying um, in the East as, as we finish the season, and there's a lot of room for teams to move up and down. But um, Charlotte's in eighth. Indiana just got Karis LeVert back. Chicago, we'll see what they do at the deadline, but all indications are, are they're going to keep most of their key guys, particularly Thaddeus Young. So they'll be there. Toronto has some decisions to make. But, you know, as you pointed out in your column, they are about even, I think. Um, a little, a, 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 well, they've got a lot of ball handlers. They've got Devontae Graham, who will go into the starting lineup. Terry Rozier and Gordon Hayward gives them a, a cushion to lose a ball handler. Now, none of those guys play in the style that LaMelo does, pushing the pace um, and just sort of the creativity of his passing is outrageous i mean it's just he just he's a different he's different it's fun it's fun to watch him because you and i we watch so much nba basketball you see the same sets over and over again they unfold in the same ways the timing of the passes is the same except when you get one of the geniuses involved then the timing it's a little different a little earlier a little later a little off kilter in a good way and that's Lamelo has that to his game the passes are just a little different in a way that helps the hornets but they have been about even uh, with two of those three guys or all three of them on the floor without LaMelo. So that's encouraging. They have enough ball handling to sort of weather a little bit of this. And I think this tends to, this this becomes about like, not so much about Rogier, Graham, and Hayward as much as it is, can Malik Monk and the Martin twins give them just enough in the increased minutes they're going to get just enough to stay afloat? Which I think they generally have. And I mean, the good news, if you're going to call it that, the silver lining from Charlotte's perspective is they've gotten used to having those players in the rotation because Graham missed extended stretches before the All-Star break. So, you know, it's not exactly the same for all the reasons you pointed out and how dynamic LaMelo is as a playmaker and just an injection of life into this franchise that needed it. But from a minute standpoint, Graham sort of trades that off. And then the downsides become twofold, I think. Number one, you can't play three, all three of those guys together 
which was a really effective lineup for them in the handful of minutes that it got under James Brago. Ball, Ball, Graham, and Rozier, you mean? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Which is ultra small, but puts a lot of shooting and playmaking out there on the court. Also gets us one step closer to the zero, one, two, three, four yeah. lineup, which I, is now gone. Yeah, the, the dream appears to, to have... Uh, How did James Borrego just... I don't, I'll don't. i never understand. This would have been, if we were ever up 20 <laughs> late or down 20 late, this would have been the only thing on my mind. What, it's, what is it? Bridges, Monk, Ball, Rogier, Graham, right? In that order? How do you not do that? I say this with love, Zach. I think the fact that this would have been at the forefront of your mind is probably one of the reasons you're not an NBA head coach. Well, I got a lot of problems. I mean, there's no question about that. Um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, and then the other is aspect is just now if one of Rogier and Graham goes down, you're really getting pretty light in terms of ball handling. So that's that's one area I could think we could see them try to address, you know, not not with a high-end investment before the trade deadline, but a lower-end one. What's interesting about Charlotte is they've outperformed their point differential by a lot because they've been maybe the best crunch time team in the entire NBA. They're 13 and five in games within five points in the last three minutes, plus 74, which is the best scoring margin in those games in the whole league. If you cut it to three minutes, three points, they're 11 and three, which is the best record in the league. So, you know, maybe there were a team that was getting, I don't want to say lucky, but they're outperforming their point differential. And that combined with losing one of their best players, if not the, their best player. Has he been their best player this year? Who do we think? Does it matter? I guess it doesn't. These debates don't matter. They've got a bunch of guys who have been pretty damn good. It, it's notable that as a rookie, he was able to play into the, his way into that conversation with Gordon Hayward playing as well as he is, with Terry Rozier making everything. Uh, our buddy Danny LaRue dropped a, a trivia question in our group chat the other day, and I, I hope I'm not stealing it from him and that he was planning to use it, but uh, Terry Rozier leads the NBA in true shooting percentage in clutch situations. He's He seems to never miss. By the way, I'm not part of this group chat. I just want to point that out. For, <laughs> for uh, I, By the way, I tweeted this over the weekend. You see Joe Ingles is on pace for the highest true shooting percentage in NBA history. I, I did see that. That is not that had uh, escaped my notice until you mentioned it. He's so having an insane shooting season. Insane. Um, yes, yeah, so LaMelo's been great. And I, I still think the, the Hornets are going to hunt for a big guy. Um it's been well known that they're interested in Miles Turner. I mean, I think the odds of that happening are are fairly low just because he's really good and the Pacers are still, you know, for all the volatility and noise about Indiana, they're still just a, a small win streak away from being the fourth seed or the fifth seed and Levert just came back. So, I, you know, any deal of that magnitude midseason is just sort of by definition unlikely. I wonder what you think about this. On the jump last week, they asked us, what are some LaMarcus Aldridge destinations that you that you where do you think you would fit? And I said before we talk about the best teams, let me just for fun mention a couple sort of like if he were actually open on the buyout market to signing with a non-glamour team, here are a couple teams I think could actually use him and he would play and make a, make a good fit. And I mentioned Charlotte. I think that I I I think he would play there. I mean, I'd rather you lose something on defense giving the Biombo minutes to him, right? I'm not sure how much you would lose on defense giving the P.J. Washington at center minutes to him. He he shoots threes now, intermittently at least. He can get you a bucket against the switch. Like I, I just think that would be, if there's a place where they need a little bit of depth, I think it's big man, not perimeter player, not ball handler, even with LaMelo injured. And just 
if they could give the ball to anybody, if they could run a pick and roll and have faith that our center is not going to drop the ball or miss a layup, it would just, just as a viewing experience, for me, it would be liberating. I mean, to me, the guy that would make sense for them is a long-term option there is Rashawn Holmes if the Kings are willing to move him. You know, Nikola Vucevic has been mentioned. He's he's older, I don't think, on the timeline you'd really want there. And, and I'd then, be really surprised if the Magic moved him. Yeah, and then more costly in terms of both salary and presumably what it would take to get him. But, you know, Holmes at that lower cap number right now, I think, would make a lot of sense. Aldridge, I'd probably be inclined to just stick with PJ Washington. Is my small ball five? That those lineups have been good for them. They're they're plus it's four true. per hundred with him at that at center. It strikes me that I should would be we're gonna have like forty percent fewer Miles Bridges just murdered a man on national television dunks without Lamelo Ball. Maybe sixty percent fewer. And and that maybe is the thing about those Washington at center lineups, which often feature Miles Bridges at power forward. Maybe they're not as good if you can't get out into transition as effectively without Lamelo Ball pushing the pushing the ball. It's been a really good story for Charlotte. Uh, Rashawn Holmes is interesting because they're getting a lot of interest in him. They seem not really inclined to trade him, and I. I kind of well. What would you do? What would it take for you to trade with Sean Holmes if you're the King? So let's review. He's 27. He's having a fantastic year. He's become a really reliable offensive player and a pretty good defensive player for someone who's a little undersized for his position. The Kings, I think, for the second year in a row, have a positive scoring margin with him on the floor. Which for the Kings, you might throw a parade. They should. <laughs> if you have a positive scoring margin while you're on the floor with the Kings, you should get a raise immediately. And they still think a playoff berth this year or next year more likely would would mean something to that franchise. He's an unrestricted free agent. You know, the center market has not been all that frothy in the last couple of off seasons. The, the league has clearly decided that, that centers who live around the basket, unless you're a Gobert-level defender or whatever-level defender, are, are or the hub of an offense, sort of like Sabonis is in Indiana, um, there's just a ceiling on your value. So I could see them thinking we're not really scared that someone's going to come with some crazy offer for Rashawn Holmes. So what, what does it take for you as Sacramento in those constraints to trade him to Charlotte? I mean, I would probably still do it if I could get a first round pick or an equivalent, because I, I do think you could get a reasonably capable center with that kind of a pick. That's the flip and side. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the other aspect of how available they are is that you can get those guys in the draft. I mean, Isaiah Stewart, for example, he was middle of the first round. But oh, we're going to talk about beef stew like, shortly. Okay. Yeah. I know he's coming, but that's the kind of player who's given, given solid minutes. Um, I, it's an interesting question though, because I, a lot of it depends on what the pressure is from ownership and, you know, how much flexibility Monty McNair has to kind of, you know, tear things down and build around De'Aaron Fox and Tyrese Halliburton's timeline, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and I think I think we sometimes are guilty of aging these guys out of those timelines too fast. Like 27 is not old. 27 no. is like he Rashawn Holmes could be this good for five more years, like as good as he is right now. He could be this good for four or five more years, which by De'Aaron Fox by that time is 27, 28, Halliburton, whatever. Like, it's not as if you have a 22-year-old and a 27-year-old and you just say, well, their timelines don't match up. Get them out of here. I, I think we're a little premature with that. Charlotte might be the example of that. 
because obviously I did lots of us were critical when they went out inside Gordon Hayward this off season. And in part because of the fact that LaMelo ball has been so much more ready to contribute than we expected. Like all of a sudden that does make more sense for the Hornets than it looked like it did when it looked like, you know, like Sacramento, they were going to be out of the play in Knicks. For the ones who get it done. Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge, and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you wait until the last minute. Shame on you, by the way. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first Mother's Day or your fashionista mom who loves to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas, you can easily pick out something special to celebrate the both. You can shop by price anywhere from $25 and under to $100 and under. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, more, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything, pre-wrapped gifts, gifts for grandma. You can find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung Smart TV. So what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th. That's very soon. It'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for your mom easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder. Daily Wager is a new podcast for all your information on tonight's games. Listen every weekday afternoon for the latest info on the biggest games and plays. That's Daily Wager. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So LaMelo Ball um, has leads all rookies in minutes other than Okoro. He's actually third. Edwards is first, Okoro is second, LaMelo's third. He leads all rookies in basically everything. I mean, every, maybe not rebounding. I don't have rebounding up in front. Scoring, PER. Or Anthony Edwards is now passive in scoring, actually. 16.7 for Edwards, 15.9 for Ball. Every advanced stat is ball, 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 ball. If, if he finishes with 41 games played or wherever he's at out of 71, you know, we've seen this with Embiid, who only played a third of a season. We saw it last year figuring out how to weigh Zion's Rookie of the Year candidacy. Um, 41 is is four-sevenths of the season. What is that, 58% or something like that? Um, that's a lot. Can, 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 anyone, can anyone take this from him in your mind? Take Rookie of the Year from him? Or, is, or should we just pencil him in as the winner? And if so, who should it be if, if someone can overtake him? Well, realistically, I feel like Anthony Edwards has a shot if he keeps scoring like this and maybe does it a bit more efficiently the rest of the season when they get back more offensive help, which maybe is the reason he's not going to keep scoring like this. I mean, you know, historically, I've written about this. You can predict rookie pre- rookie of the year pretty easily. It's the guy who leads in combined points per game, rebounds per game, assists per game, almost always wins the award. And there's now a chance that Anthony Edwards can if not surpass LaMelo Ball in that, at least come close enough that the fact that he's healthy all season might sway voters to his side. But, you know, in terms of in actual value to his team perspective, I think Halliburton and and Emmanuel Quickly, those are the two guys that maybe have a chance to close that gap before the end of the season. But part of this comes back to a fundamental question, uh, which is how do we do we treat rookie of the year and the all rookie teams the same way as we do MVP and the all NBA teams? Or are we going to put a little more on, you know, whether it's projection for, you know, talented prospects or the quantity of contributions, even if necessarily the, the quality of them isn't quite as strong? You certainly consider 
it, it's a totally different kind of voting because both for all rookie and rookie of the year, you're going to naturally consider guys on bad teams because the best prospects get drafted by bad teams. And so Edwards is shooting 38% overall, 43 on twos, 32 on threes. His advanced numbers are terrible. I think he's last in win shares among all rookies, for instance, just one example. But that's just so... I, I almost, when I see a rookie that is placed into a role with his level of responsibility on a bad team, I just, I have a hard time. That's when you just have to watch the games. And if you watch the games, you see a guy who, yeah, he'll make some mistakes, take some bad shots. He, he doesn't just take long twos. He takes the long twos that have basically gone extinct in the NBA. He takes like the 21 and a half footers that nobody takes anymore. And he'll get, he'll ball watch on defense, all rookie stuff. He'll also, like, like how, how am I supposed to compare him to Patrick Williams, who is the fourth or fifth option at all times and does not have any of these responsibilities? And then if he did, his efficiency numbers would crater too. I think you have to watch a guy like Edwards for, yes, you would like the efficiency to creep up, and I think it would if you were playing with D'Angelo Russell and Carl Towns and if, if Ricky Rubio had been playing like he has in the last three weeks. All season, I think his numbers would be more efficient. I think you have to watch him like, what, what am I, not not ignore the result totally, but yeah, okay, so he missed at the rim, or what was the process in getting there? How many passes a game does he, does he make that make you think, okay, something is happening there? And to me, he's been passing all those tests based on his age and experience level. The fact that the Wolves are awful and have been playing without Towns for part of the year, Russell for most of the year, blah, blah, blah. To me, I, I bet you're going to see some arguments from people who don't think he should be in the top three for rookie of the year, and maybe shouldn't be on the first team all rookie based on his advanced numbers. And I don't, I don't buy those. Yeah, I mean, it's a case that we see over and over again with player rookies that are drafted at age 19 onto bad teams and asked to do a lot. I mean, Colin Sexton two years ago, I think, was you know one of the ultimate examples of that where. He, he his advanced numbers I think were even worse that year than than Anthony Edwards' numbers have been so far this year, and we've seen, you know, he's I don't think that he's as good now as his scoring average looks, and the idea that he was in the All Star conversation at one point early in the process that was probably a bit aggressive for my taste, but he's become a very promising quality guard in a way that you would expect. Not you know he wasn't doomed by the fact that he was maybe the least valuable player in the league as a rookie. So like, yeah, like Xavier Tillman has better advanced numbers than mm -hmm. Anthony Edwards. I think Xavier Tillman's a nice player, but it that's just I mean, there's just he's a bench guy on a decent team with people spoon feeding him floaters and shots around the rim. He's got a he's a good defender, a good rebounder, all that. It's just completely different than what Anthony Edwards has had to be. It's rare that we're comparing players in such different roles in an awards context. Usually they're somewhat more similar. I mean, obviously you're going to have, you know, volume scores versus efficient big men in the six man award conversation, but it's not as dramatic as we see here. And, and particularly the last few weeks where with Malik Beasley suspended by the league, uh, Edwards usage rate is over 30%, which is something that only two rookies in and since we started tracking usage rate have done in more than a thousand minutes in a season, which are Ben Gordon and Luka Doncic, who were a bit more ready for those roles, I would say, than Anthony Edwards was. It's it's also Joel Embiid and Zion Williamson in their shortened seasons. The, that's the group that he's in, in that mix with. And he's had some awesome nights in there. You know, he's had 
some of the very best games that rookies have had, but then also he's going to have some games where he goes four for 18 with seven turnovers. Agree 100%. And, um, you know, exactly as you would expect for a rookie, you know, put in his situation. So for me, I, I said, let's let's do our tentative all-rookie teams. And by tentative, I just want to make clear, I mean tentative. <laughs> tentative, like I didn't put all that much research into it as I will when I vote, all this stuff. To me... There are four spots on first team all rookie that are about done. Four out of the five: Lamelo, Halliburton, Quickly, and Edwards. It sounds like you might disagree. I I think Edwards is more debatable. To okay. me, Halliburton and Quickly and and Ball those ones you can kind of rubber stamp. Edwards, I think we need at least need to look closely at. Although you know, I think for all the reasons we've discussed, I think his case is probably stronger than James Wiseman's. Right. I no, I don't think that's I think that's clear now. Um and Wiseman has missed a little time here there. Halliburton is in pen. He he is just wonderful. Exactly what everyone told me he would be. A delight to watch and uh and and a fantastic all around player already. Who are some of your favorite candidates for that fifth and final spot? If you just grant me, grant me Edwards is gonna be on the team because he will when the voters vote. So grant me that. Who are some of your candidates for the fifth spot? I, I think that's fair. Uh, so I'm, we mentioned a few of them. Tillman and Stewart, I think, have to be in that mix. Uh, their teammates also, Desmond Bain and Sadiq Bey, who are much more the three and D rule players in a similar vein. It's weird that we have the two Detroit guys because it's usually players that are on better teams like Tillman and Bain, but Bay and uh, Stewart have sort of fit into those smaller roles. So, so I want to stop you by saying I have six guys that are like my tier one guys for the next, for that last spot which would make them tier one guys for the second team. And you've already named four of them, Stewart, uh, Stewart, Bay, Bain, and Tillman, maybe seven guys, sorry, seven guys. So you've already, you've already got, you've already got four of them. I would assume Jay Sean Tate is also Jay in Sean that Tate's in that tier. Very, very nice player for the Rockets. He's a steal. Uh, let's see. Compazzo. Is he, is he he's in, the, in next? the next, he's in the next tier as much as I, I love I love Composito. He's in the next tier with a couple other guys. That would probably be my group. Who else do you have in there? I have Pat Williams um, starting on a quote-unquote playoff team. I just can't. If you're not 500, I can't call you a playoff team, even if you're in the playoffs. But I, I, I see what the Bulls saw in Pat Williams. Now, I'm not sure I would be nicknaming him after Kawhi Leonard quite yet, which the Bulls broadcast. I can't remember what they call him. They, don't call, they call him some play on the claw. Or the paw, the paw. I think they call him the paw. I, let's let's just maybe ease back on that. But I see what they saw in him. He's 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 a good two way or a decent two way player on a on a playoff team. I have Wiseman just because of the hype and the pedigree and the and the raw production and the fact that he's going to get a lot of opportunities. I think once he comes back, uh, and that's it. So those are my. And other than that, I have Bain, um, who's just always seems to be helping. I'm never nervous when Desmond Bain has the ball or he's on the floor. I'm always, I always feel pretty good from Memphis' perspective. And Tate is just, I really like Tate. He, he's a rotation player on a good team right now. Not, he's not on a good team right now. He could be a rotation player on a good team. After that, you get into your Peyton Pritchards. Campazzo, you would have Campazzo higher. And, you know, Okoro deserves some credit for playing a lot of minutes and being a really good defender already. And, and then I'm kind of done after that, I think. And Stewart. Yeah. Oh, Stewart. Beef Stew. We got to talk about Beef Stew, too. But anyway. Yeah, I mean, Williams is an interesting case because I think he fits into a class of rookies where they don't screw anything up. And 
for a rookie, that's kind of the first test. And I think sometimes the it's analysis doesn't necessarily go beyond that. And the fact that he's such a small part of their offense is probably a bit more of a drain than not screwing up would suggest. That's interesting. His, his usage rate is quite low. He it's has higher shown, than I expected, actually. His, he has shown glimpses of being able to get you a bucket in the mid-range. You know, if he catches it with a little bit of an advantage or a defender closing out on him, which is really interesting. But his size and balance and body control are, are really intriguing. Um, the guy I watch, I, I like more and more every time I watch him, is Isaiah Stewart. I liked him the first week he was in the league. He was in my first 10 things column of the year. I think maybe first or second. He's starting to shoot jumpers now. He's starting to shoot threes, dipping his toe into the waters of the three-point arc and hitting a good percentage of them. I think he's got a chance to be a really solid rotation player for a long time. He, I, he, He's good right now. He's a good player, I think. I mean, the first thing is he just plays so hard all the time, and that's been an extremely consistent trait going back to his prep career. It was true. I watched him you know, at UW last year uh, during his one college season, and that's going to cover a lot of sins. I mean, I think the biggest question I had was whether he was going to have enough size to handle playing center defensively in the league, and, and I don't think that's really been a huge issue thus far. He's, he's handled that fine, and you know, he doesn't, like you said, He's someone who has, I think, the potential to eventually shoot threes, even though we haven't seen that from him yet. I think it has to count as somewhat of a disappointment, not any meaningful disappointment, not anything that necessarily has bad long-term implications, but that Denny Avdia is nowhere near this conversation, I think has to count a little bit as a disappointment, given the fact that he spent much of the year starting. Um, and the other name I wanted to mention, I'd be interested to, to, to get your take on Devin Vassell, what do you think, like talking about low usage rate and Patrick Williams and sort of not making mistakes being your thing, it made me think of Vassell because you know, he, he gets steals, which is very, very valuable. But a lot of his value is like th there, are, there are entire five minute stretches where he, he doesn't touch the ball. Like he's, he's on the floor and he's playing good defense and he's in the corner waiting, but he actually doesn't get the ball at all. So what, what are your early thoughts on him? Well, I look forward to years worth of debates about how valuable he is because he's in that player type. Robert Covington is probably the archetype of this where, you know, your offensive value or maybe Danny Green, who kind of Vassell's role, I think eventually in San Antonio will be like, maybe he's the archetype. Your role offensively is your value offensively is entirely dependent on whether you make threes or not, but you only get like four or five of them a game. So sometimes you're going to go over five and people aren't going to pay attention to what you're doing at the defensive end of the court. And therefore they're going to, you're going to be trending on Twitter anytime your team loses. I, it was funny. I was watching Spurs Bucks the other night, Marquez Johnson, who does, or Marcus Johnson, who does a, a beautiful job for the Bucks on, on color commentary was saying that he had read that. And I had heard this too, that Vassell broke some kind of record for, uh, I think it was like 11 straight games with at least one steal and no turnovers. And he started laughing. He was like, I don't really know what that record means, but it's <laughs> it's something. And I thought the same thing because it means you get steals. That's good. It also means you kind of don't do anything on offense because you only get turnovers if you actually like do stuff. I, he, he's, I like what I've seen so far, but it, your stuff on Pat Williams made me, made me think of him. So that's that's the rookie race. I don't know who I would give that fifth spot to now, but quickly Halliburton, LaMelo, Edwards, they're in. And then all these other guys are are pretty good. I mean, is, is there anyone – do you want to make your Compazzo case other than he's the most fun rookie in the league? It, there was partially a guess. I mean, I think he's similar to Jay Sean Tate in terms of – 
you know, he actually is on the good team. So that's, that's helpful for him. He, he's held up much better defensively than I would have anticipated given his lack of size. I mean, he is such a pest. Sometimes it's dangerous to even dribble the ball around him. I forget who they were playing the other night where he was causing them fits with his pressure. Uh, offensively, you know, he's, He's not as involved as the typical point guard is going to be for, you know, given their, that they always have Jamal Murray or Nikola Jokic on the court, but he's not going to hurt you in that same vein either. All right, Mr. Pelton. Well, thank you for helping us sort this sad LaMelo ball injury out. Maybe we'll get lucky. Maybe the basketball gods will smile upon us and he'll be back for the play-in or something like that. But read KP's piece on LaMelo. It's up today and you're gearing up for all the trade grades are coming, right? You got your you got your ledger ready. You got your red pen re- ready to give some give out some grades. Uh, the the real secret is I've been pre writing a few bios of guys, so hopefully they get traded, and that's that's part of how those grades get turned around so quickly. That's Ooh, inside baseball, taking you behind the curtain. All right, Mr. Pelton, thank you for your time as always. Go cracking. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.